The word terrorism in the United States is undoubtedly a racialized term. Ever since 9-11 and possibly before that, but that's my own reference point and an important cu cultural touchstone for this thesis, uh, terrorism has become, in the minds of many, a thing perpetrated upon us by a, more often than not, Middle Eastern-looking them. Uh, at a press conference, San Bernardino Police Chief Gerard Bergwan said of the massacre that took place there on December 3rd, quote, there is no information indicating this is terrorist-related in the traditional sense that people might be thinking, end quote. We don't need to ask ourselves what he means by traditional. Our societal trauma of 9-11 in the post-9-11 period has ensured that our brains pick up what he's putting down there. Uh, in, in strict definitional terms, terrorism is the act of using violence and fear for political means. The FBI's own exceedingly broad definition deems terrorism as involving acts dangerous to human life that violate federal or state law and that appear intended to intimidate or to coerce a civilian population. Um, but to understand the term, really, you don't need to go much further than the name. Terrorism involves instilling terror. And when we look at it that way, when we cease to otherize it, that's when things start maybe feeling a little uncomfortable. Because if we're not thinking of terrorism in the traditional sense, then we only need go as far as Fort Benning, Georgia, to find the leading proponent of untraditional terrorism in the Western Hemisphere. School of the Americas was established in Panama in 1946, but was expelled from the country in 1984. Former Panamanian President Jorge Iluica, and I apologize if I botched that name, described the institution as the biggest base for destabilization in Latin America, as it has trained over 64,000 Latin American soldiers in the techniques of war, including torture, trainings that have been utilized against student leaders, religious workers, and union organizers, among others. School of the Americas Watch, a watchdog organization whose ultimate goal is the closure of SOA, was formed one year after the 1989 Yucca Massacre, during which six Jesuit priests, their housekeeper, and her daughter were murdered by graduates of the school. So a group, a handful of activists, about a dozen activists, staged a hunger strike in front of the gates of Fort Benning, and that was the birth of the movement. Today we've got, yeah, we will have um, several thousand people who will converge tomorrow at the gates of Fort Benning. And over the last 25 years, the movement has really succeeded in educating the general public about the reality of U.S. foreign policy towards Latin America. That voice you're hearing is... Hendrik Voss. I'm the national organizer of School of the Americas Watch. And the foreign policy he speaks of is a foreign policy that facilitates terrorism in that untraditional sense that we spoke about earlier. Eight peace community members in 2005 killed in Colombia, 900 El Salvadoran civilians in 1981, scores and scores between those two dates, uh, including the assassination of clergy, practicing liberation theology, union organizers, the list goes on and on and on. And uh, the, the movement brought these atrocities to public scrutiny in 1999. We actually got very close to shutting down the school when the House of Representatives, under intense pressure from grassroots activists, um, voted to cut the funding for the School of the Americas. And who says legislators don't respond to popular will? So the following year, when we were again poised to win a vote in the House, 
the Pentagon preempted the vote by coming up with their own proposal. And their proposal was that they said, we will close the School of the Americas, but within the same legislation, we will open up a new school with a different name, but with the same mission in the same building with the same instructors. And it was even the same training manuals. A tactical rebranding. Brilliant, because it relieves the pressure on the Pentagon by giving the lawmakers who have been browbeaten into acting by the School of the Americas watch and out, at least temporarily. So we again did the research. We looked at the names of human rights abusers from Latin America, and we looked at the names of the graduates of the supposedly reformed new school, which was then renamed the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation, Mm -hmm. so very Orwellian. Concede to a few surface touch-ups, implement a toothless oversight committee, give it a name change, uh, a footnote in the torture manual about human rights, and it's back to business. The primary means of watching the SOA utilized by School of the Americas Watch has been through Freedom of Information Act requests. But post 9-11, the government has made it harder to attain the names of the graduates through FOIA requests on national security grounds. We challenged that decision in court, and uh, we won in federal court, but the Obama administration appealed that decision. So right now it's, um, it's on appeal, but we are very confident that within the next few months we will receive the names Great. of the new graduates, and then also we will again do the research mm-hmm. to really uh, show our case why the school has to be shut down. Meanwhile, the school continues to operate, and the seeds of destabilization as planted since the middle of last century continue to bear fruit. So we see the School of the Americas as one of the root causes of migration. SOA-trained graduates go to Latin America, are targeting union organizers, religious mm-hmm. leaders, educators, basically everybody who speaks out for the rights of the poor and who does organizing to change the status quo that benefits the elites. So when people are under, um, under a fire by SOA graduates, they have to flee. And also other people have to flee because of the economic conditions that are being kept in place by the School of the Americas. So once the people are coming into the United States, they are yeah, more often than not targeted by racist immigration laws. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people then are ending up uh, incarcerated at places like the Stewart Detention Center. Stewart is the largest adult male immigrant prison in the United States. In light of the Catch-22 imposed upon people fleeing violence perpetrated by SOA graduates in Latin America, only to be faced with racist state violence when they arrive, School of the Americas Watch has incorporated a visit to the Stewart Detention Center into their November vigil every year for the last nine years. And in one of those classic historical twists of fate, the two facilities are only about a 20-minute drive apart.
The march to the Stewart Detention Center began at the county courthouse in Lumpkin Town Square and ended two miles of Georgia countryside later. The marchers took up the right side of the road, and as they marched, they chanted and sang. There were modifications of your movement staples, such as... But then there was also... about two groups of people away from true multiplicity of voices saying all different things but meaning one thing solidarity once we reached the gates the plan of action became very clear and there are some of us here today that have committed to taking action and crossing this border here we are asking that if you are compelled to join us in an act of civil disobedience to demonstrate this, that this border, that this detention center, that this practice of immigrant detention and deportation needs to end, please join us on the right side of the stage. This approach to civil disobedience is a unique one, at least in my experience. Uh, organizations generally have a, well, I won't say generally, I'll say that often have a tight plan of who's risking arrest way ahead of time and who's not risking arrest, who's on the sidelines. Um, but this appeal by School of the Americas Watch and some other organizations involved in the movement against Stewart and mass deportation, this appeal to whomever may be compelled by their higher nature to break the law Made me re made me think of a like a revivalist gathering, but in the best sense of the words, um, the sort of openness, transparency, on the spot, move if the spirit moves you sort of approach to uh, action, and it was refreshing. It was definitely um, not cynical. It was all heart. Uh, and the 11 or so people who had decided to cross onto Stewart Detention Center property were swiftly cuffed without much fuss while the onlookers sang. Come all you steward workers, good news to you I'll tell Of how the people arose up and shut down this living hell Some ancestors were slaves here, the migrants here are sons before the civil disobedience, people took to the makeshift stage erected about 20 feet from the gates of Stewart, where about a dozen men uniformed in the garb of half a dozen state agencies stood stone-faced. One of those people was Estella, whose brother was held at Stewart. Last year, she received the call of millions of undocumented families dread. After a childhood together, her brother went back to Mexico to enroll in seminary, since that opportunity was not afforded him as an undocumented person. After he got out of the seminary, there were several things that had gone very wrong inside the seminary and outside of the seminary. I remember being at one of our friend's weddings, getting a call saying that he had to come back because there were threats being made against his life. He was running for his life. He told them 
when the border agents were questioning him, he said that his entire family was in Georgia. Because I'm undocumented, even though I have DACA, I've always known I wasn't documented. I've always tried to be as involved as I could with immigrants' rights movement, speaking up for myself, for my family, for the people around me, helping those who are U.S. citizens who have green cards be educated in how trampled we get and how we get abused so that they could help us speak up because they have a vote and I don't. My brother was, in, was detained in four different centers in Texas, and then they transferred him to Louisiana where they finally allowed him to call us and let us know where he was. It took another two days or so for him to get transferred to Stewart Detention Center in October of 2014. He didn't get deported until March of 2015. Despite her brother's heart-rending circumstances, Estella sees hope in the masses gathered at the gates of Stewart. I'm used to whenever we go to, whenever we do anything immigration related, whether it be talks or town hall meetings, I'm used to seeing a lot of Hispanic people, a lot of Latino people, a lot of, a lot of immigrant, immigrant faces, the stereotypical immigrant face that everybody thinks that if you're an immigrant, you must be Hispanic. And <laughs> as I was walking up here and I saw all the different colors all the different places that we represent, all the different cultures that we carry within our hearts. The only thing that I can tell you is that you have something very powerful that a lot of us don't have. You have something that can change the world a lot faster than we can. And that is your right to vote. If change is gonna happen, it's gonna happen through you. Because I can come here to Stewart every single day. I can sit in front of their gates every single day and they will not budge. But when you unite, when you come together and you use your vote to speak your truth, to speak the truth that we are suffering, that we need justice, that is where you will change the world. Estella's story is that of millions of immigrant families whose voices have only recently come to the fore in the public sphere. They're living out only one fraction of the pain caused by our destabilizing policies in the Western Hemisphere. Not in the sense that Estella's pain or her family's pain is a fraction of anyone else's. I'm referring to the, back to the Catch-22 I spoke about earlier. Estella's brother was here. His family arrived for a better life, and he was deported. The folks we hear about even less than Estella and her family are the countless people who never made it over our imaginary line in the sand.
When I was in Georgia, I had the opportunity to speak to Helen. Helen is not this person's real name. She declined to have her real name used on the podcast for reasons you'll understand soon. Stories like hers are all too common. I live here in the U.S. Um, I'm originally from Mexico. Uh, I, I, fa- I found out about the School of Americas uh, way back, about junior high. But I've been more connected or been more um, actively involved in finding out about this school because four years ago and seven months, my brother, Andres, um, went missing. And when this first happened, you don't know what to think, you don't know what to, what to do, who you turn to, why is this really happening? Uh, I knew, I knew what was going on in Mexico and all the rest of Latin America. I knew there were disappeared, I knew there was people being um, forced to go out of their their own homes, but I, unfortunately, I never paid more close attention to it because since it wasn't happening to, to us, it wasn't really close to home, I really didn't bother much until my brother um, called my mom one night on the 27th of March, 2011, saying, Mother, I'm okay. I'm going to go to Laredo, where he actually lives and works. He's a truck driver for Swift. He's, he's told my mom I'm going to go. I'm going to stay the night on Laredo on the Mexico side. And tomorrow morning, I'm just going to cross the border. I'm going to go to work. And uh, he was actually going to talk to the uh, supervisor about him having some time, some time off because he was three semesters away from finishing international relations and and um, university in Mexico and he was planning his wedding. He actually have a son I don't know hasn't seen and um, that night my mom said okay God bless you and and call me as soon as you cross the border and he said okay they the call was ended, and then right after, I will say a like few minutes after, not long, uh, he called back and said, Mom, guess what happened? She said, what happened? <clears throat> and he said, I just went through a checkpoint. And my mom was really afraid. She already was scared. Mm-hmm. Because unfortunately, police in Mexico, we consider them as uh, criminals, too. We mm-hmm. didn't trust them mm-hmm. at all, especially for those areas on the north side. Mm-hmm. So she said, please, please don't fight them. Just give them what they ask. Don't try to be reasonable. Just do what they ask you to do. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I'm fine. We just crossed it. They did ask me for money. I just gave them 200 pesos, which uh, that's all I'm carrying right now. And uh, I just they asked me for a driver's license. I gave them my American drive license and they didn't like it and said we need something else and he said that's all I have and this is where I've been driving for 10 years I've been coming in and out of the country without problems and said okay we're just gonna need money and then he said I don't have no money I don't carry cash 
they are you and he said okay all i have is 200 pesos so i give it to them and i said okay please don't fight them don't say anything and he's like i'm okay i just crossed it as he was talking to her about this uh, suddenly my brother started screaming because he was driving with a friend his friend is uh braulio hernandez bravo he is uh, from the same town as my brother he is, he, I was, he was actually the one that he was driving. And my brother, he just said, acelera, Braulio, acelera, acelera. Um, which is, means step on the gas. Mm -hmm. But in a very, very um, anguish and a scary mm -hmm. sense, my mom says, what's going on? Please tell me what's happening. And he was just keep on screaming. Just acelera, Braulio, acelera. Uh, my mother keep on screaming, what is going on, please just tell me. And she said that all she heard is my brother screaming. And then just a second or two, he said, Mom, I'll call you later. Everything's going to be okay. And that was it. We haven't heard anything from him. It's been five, four, it's been... It's been five years and seven months, I'm sorry. Helen talked about Mexican police and Mexican officials like they were wasps. This sort of don't do anything to them, don't bother them, and they won't bother you attitude. Their corruption is almost always a given. Helen's mother began asking questions, of, as any mother would, and quickly found out that her and her family were not alone. Just asking questions and questions. Why are they doing this? Who is doing it? And, and then that's how you get to look for information, to look to see what's really happening. And then I'm realizing that that this has been happening from 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 for for a while, like very very long time. And then <clears throat> we realized the time of my brother went missing, there were over 20,000 people disappeared. They're being confirmed, like their people, their loved ones already uh, asked for authorities for help. Mm -hmm. But then there's an unestimated number that they don't do it because of fear. Thousands have reported disappeared, countless thousands unreported disappeared, even foreign nationals kidnapped and sold back to their families for ransom. Soon after her brother's disappearance, son of a famous Mexican poet, Javier Cecilia, was found murdered. He put himself in our shoes, and he brought this out to the light, and I said, hey, it's not just my son, it's over 20,000 people disappear, over 80 people already mm -hmm. dead, and something's happened. So mm -hmm. he actually made this big movement, and it's called Movimiento por la Paz, con Justicia y Dignidad. That's what it's called. And then he realized that, hey, it is not just happening to us. It's been happening to all Latin America, and it's been happening for years. And it is time for us to say, you know what, sorry. Sorry because when it happens to you, we don't care since it wasn't us. Helen's mother continued looking for her son, facing overt and covert intimidation by Mexican officials. 
She ran into Javier Cecilia's caravan in northern Mexico as it traveled to raise awareness about the countless thousands who have been disappeared. Uh, by the time my mother was still in the area looking for him, he already finished, so Javier Cecilia finished the caravan on the south, asking for forgiveness to all the, the immigrants that have to cross our, our country mm -hmm. to get here. So there was another one going to the north and to recognize that all this was happening. And it wasn't thousands of people. Mm -hmm. I can tell you it's not thousands. Helen estimates the actual number of disappeared as well in the hundreds of thousands. When they got to the north, my mom was in the area. So she just went with them and said, this is happening to me too. Mm -hmm. So she found a way to learn to get resources, to get, f like, feel welcome, and I said, hey, we're going for the same thing, you know, we're here for you too. Mm -hmm. that, that's how we, we start. Her tour with the caravan brought her to Fort Benning, where she found out just how long the shadow of the School of the Americas was. She read the list of graduates and spoke to people at School of the Americas Watch, and found out that among the graduated from the school, is the leader of the Zetas drug cartel among the most violent in Mexico. Yeah, that that's what happened with a lot of the grads that they go back to their countries and they desert the, the military mm -hmm. and they start their own organization. So they have all the intelligence to organize and to, to drive people. In terms of possible solutions to the situation in Latin America, Helen is clear. It's just been changing differently. They're called... Uh, development, they call it um, desarrollo, they call it many, many names, but the structure has been always the same. It, it means like you have to raise completely everything and start all over. Mm -hmm. Because even if we, I hope that's where SOI Watch has been trying to do for so long, mm -hmm. to close it. But the, the government has so many ways to to reemerge, like to redo things, and they just call it differently, or they're just already preparing another facility to do the same thing. So, as we've already seen them do with their name change from School of the Americas to the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation, it's about class ultimately. Helen says it's rich and powerful in their institutions versus those who have been trampled under their feet. It's not just the governments of Latin America that Helen sees as encroaching on the rights of their own populations. She sees traces of this tendency in the United States as well. So but this all manipulation of fear, yeah. it's, it's getting out of hand and people don't realize that. And every time that something happens, they just tell us it's for your own good, it's for your own safety. We have to be vigilant, we have to record you, we have to do... Like, it is... The biggest lies. I mean, in my country, I'm not surprised. If they sell, they sell me a democracy, but they've been selling it for so many years, and we know who they are. We know what they're about. We, I don't, I don't expect any good from them. Mm -hmm. But in this country, it was the model for a few years. It was the model of believing that democracy exists. And what has been happening is, is, is realize an illusion. Spending that weekend at the November vigil was eye-opening. Things that I knew intellectually about U.S. involvement in Latin America, 
I gained a whole new dimension on thanks to the people I met and the, the stories that I heard. To get more involved in opposing the School of the Americas and U.S. intervention in Latin America, please check out SOAW.org. That's the School of the Americas Watch. And stay tuned to peoplesworld.org for more coverage on the issue. To end the episode, I leave you with an address given by Father Roy Bourgeois, the founder of the School of the Americas Watch, at the gates of the School of the Americas this past vigil. Um, after that, I'll play a song called uh, The Ballad of Roy Bourgeois, um, which is available on the compilation Sing It Down from the School of the Americas website. Uh, it's 15 bucks. It's a good deal. It's got great music. All, in fact, all the music that we've played throughout this entire episode, all the interstitials are from that compilation. So if you enjoyed any of those, it's the product of the Artists Collective at School of the Americas Watch, available for a donation of $15. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Um, next podcast is probably due out after the holidays. So I look forward to working on that. And uh, we're thinking at the moment that the topic of the episode will be around the issue of terrorism in and around women's clinics throughout the United States. It's a big issue, involves a lot of uh, research and interviews, and we're working on putting those together for you right now. So hang tight because it's coming. This is Patrick Foy. I'll see you next time. Solidarity. the border, El Paso and Juarez. There we met the family, the parents and the family members of Jose Antonio Rodriguez, 16 years old. He and his friends were just near the wall in Juarez. Jose was killed by a border patrol, by a rifle. We met with his family, his friends. We wept together. I regret to say that now, just recently, they began to train border patrol at SOA Winsett. This is wrong. This is outrageous. This is a combat military school here. This is not a place for border patrol agents. And when they go back to the border after their training, we will follow them. Our delegation then went to Nogales in Arizona. We heard the many, many stories, horror stories really, of our sisters and brothers who were apprehended, separated from their children. In March, we were in El Salvador, our delegation went, and we met with President Seren of El Salvador. He told us to keep doing what we're doing. We must close the school of assassins, he said, who caused untold suffering and death to the people of El Salvador and throughout the Americas. And we asked him as we left the meeting, what can we do in our movement to express our solidarity with the people of El Salvador in Central America? He said, please make the plight of our migrants. Make immigration, he said, a high priority, a top priority in your movement. On Friday, the largest daily newspaper in our country, USA Today, 
in a very lengthy article just Friday about immigration. It stated that in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, people are leaving, coming to the United States not to better their lives, but to save their lives. Let me just say this is not complicated here. If our sisters and brothers who are fleeing the violence, the poverty, so connected to this school and U.S. foreign policy, militarization, and our economic policies there, if they stay, they will die. If they leave, they and their children will live. We come once again in the name of solidarity. As we all know, solidarity is about making the struggle of others our struggle. That moment, that time has come in our movement when we must make the plight of our migrant brothers and sisters throughout the Americas their struggle must be our struggle. Come all you friends of justice And a story I will tell About a priest named Roy Bourgeois Fort Benning knows him well While serving in the Navy In far off Vietnam saw firsthand the works of war, the bullet and the bomb. Amidst the death and suffering, Roy learned another way. From a Catholic missionary and the spirit seemed to say, my ways are not the ways of men, and if you follow me, then you will have a cross to bear and not an M16. And so with inspiration, Roy did receive a call. He joined the missionaries that were called the Merry Dolls. So tell me who is braver when sent off to foreign lands? Person with a weapon or open heart and hands. Now when you live among the poor, you begin to question why. The rich receive the lion's share and the poor left to die. And what good does the U.S. hope to gain by giving guns? To soldiers trained at the SOA who are killing priests and nuns. While working in Bolivia, Roy dared to take a side. Arrested, beaten, tortured, he was threatened with his life. Expelled out of that country, then went to Salvador. Where death squads killed with impunity and made war upon the poor. You heard about the massacres, you heard about the pain. The slaughter of the Jesuits of Belmazote slain. Amara Clark and Nita Ford, the only name of few. Challenged by Romero's voice, Roy knew what he must do. 
He found out that their killers were all trained by SOA and armed by the U.S. Army at Fort Benning, USA. One night outside their barracks with two friends, he climbed a tree. And they blasted out Romero's words to the soldiers at their feet. Well, the three were all arrested and all sent off to jail. But they would not be silent in their stories they would tell. Roy traveled across this country to speak to old and young. And take the U.S. government to task for what they'd done. So folks began to gather outside Fort Benning's gate. At first only a handful, but our numbers soon were great. We number in the thousands now from every town and state. Tell the U.S. government that justice cannot wait. There are many kinds of oppression and inequality. In our work, in schools, in churches, and society. But oppression needs complicity of silence to move on. Roy learned that solidarity with others makes you strong. So how then could he turn his back when invited to attend? A woman's ordination can this only be for men? The church said, Roy, you must renounce this kind of equality. Or you will be suspended from your priestly faculties. But Roy would not be silenced by the Roman hierarchy. God can inspire women as God has inspired me. To say God cannot do this is to dare to limit God. So I will stand with women priests, with them I cast my lot. Now some will follow blindly, and others they will not. And some will search for answers and examine what we've got. But if you want examples of good Christianity, then Roy Bourgeois is a hero for his humanity.